You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hi, I'm Lauren Smith, Education Editor of Campus Review. Today I spoke to Kylie Walker, the Chief Executive of Science and Technology Australia, about an event held on Wednesday in Canberra called Science Meets Policymakers. She began by telling me about one of the main issues that innovation faces in Australia, international researchers having trouble gaining visas or long-term employment. She then went on to outline two other major barriers to innovation as discussed at the event. Other points that came up over and over again at the different tables. Um, One is that while the Australian government in particular in the last uh, 18 months, two years, has been really strongly uh, in favour of and advocating for better connections between the academic sector and the commercial sector um, and has been encouraging collaborations to commercialise a lot of the fantastic research that we do in Australia, individuals in the room felt that the pathways to support for that commercialisation and um, to support uh, better R&D in the private sector are not communicated clearly enough. So there was a lot of confusion there about what's available to to help make the step, bridge the gap, uh, make the connection between those different sectors. And Charlie undertook um, to to think about that with his team as well, about uh, ways that that might be done better in the future. I mean, that was a particularly interesting one for Charlie because he does come from a a background um, of entrepreneurship, startup and commercialisation himself. So I guess he's got a fairly thorough understanding of the way that that system or particular part of the system works. Um, One more... uh, theme that kept coming up during that discussion was um, the the need for uh, non-academic employers, so industry um, and government, to employ people with STEM PhDs, so science, technology, engineering, mathematics uh, PhDs. Um, and an understanding that a degree in, in STEM these days is more likely to uh, lead to a non-research career and it is to lead to a career in research. So only a small portion of the people who do a degree in science or technology, engineering or maths will become an academic and an academic researcher. Most of the people who do those degrees are going to be going out to do other kinds of jobs. Um, Some of them perhaps you might think are tangentially related, like going into the finance industry, um, and others uh, are probably a little bit clearer to see the connection. So they might become a science teacher, for example. Um, but understanding, I think, better the, the employment pathways for people who have those skills on the one hand um, and understanding in, amongst employers about the benefits that those kinds of degrees bring is, is a theme that was um, revisited a number of times as well. And so following that, there was a workshop on environmental information Can you briefly outline what was discussed there and the outcomes of that discussion? Sure. So this workshop was led by the Department of Environment and Energy. It was really interesting. Um, The department, I think, was was quite surprised by how effective the consultation was. And in fact, uh, a couple of the the rather senior members who were present described themselves as a pig in mud, so clearly it worked for them. The idea of accounting for good environmental management in a way that accountants and economists understand is something that's gaining a lot of momentum internationally and it's something that we haven't quite worked out how to 
uh, meaningfully apply in the Australian context. So this is a very new area of policy development. It's very much a live issue. Um, and it's about taking the technology that we have um, to collect enormous amounts of data, whether that be um, through satellite technology or drones, for example, um, to uh, give us a lot of information about the way that the environment uh, moves, changes, responds to um, people, uh, to changing climate, to the way that it's used for industry. Um, and then using that data to um, apply a system of environmental management which uh, quantifies it in economic terms. So, for example, what value is there in protecting the World Heritage Listed Great Barrier Reef Marine National Park um, compared with the value in perhaps dredging uh, to facilitate uh, a mining shipway? What value is there in protecting a, a delicate ecosystem, uh, perhaps a grasslands on the outskirts of a growing city where there might be some endangered species, uh, keeping that looked after versus building some new houses and, and expanding the suburbs. So we haven't uh, until now internationally had uh, a common language to compare those two approaches and, and uh, look at them as like for like. So this issue is about how do we create a common language, how do we use that huge volume of information that we now have and, and continue to collect um, about the environment to quantify the value of looking after the environment really responsibly um, versus uh, exploiting it for uh, economic gain. Uh, so that was a, a really interesting discussion and um, because we had a range of different scientists and policymakers from a whole range of different disciplines, they weren't just environmental scientists, we had engineers, mathematicians, uh, we had physicists, we had all kinds of people uh, putting their minds to this issue. And so again, a few new ideas sort of started to bubble up through that discussion. We looked at the idea of um, equipping federal government departments so that they've got the tools to analyse and store all of that data, making them data fit. So skilled staff, appropriate systems, um, linking them um, to other departments, agencies or uh, organisations where they can have a relevant information sharing and also a supportive culture to encourage people to, to use it properly. Um, the idea also came up to um, introduce more user-centred solutions. So. Uh, create incentives for people uh, rather than machines, create incentives for people to, to people to get involved in using this data meaningfully and contributing it um, in a way that actually uh, can be used and applied properly. Um, and we also looked at, uh, or part of the discussion looked at where this is working really well and uh, we agreed that in parts of the Australian health sector it's working really well in parts of uh, ocean exploration and all of the myriad of information types that go into that or are generated by that, it's working really well. Um, in astrophysics, it's working really well. So what lessons can we learn from those disciplines and those approaches and, and apply uh, to um, a more t terrestrial uh, outcome, I suppose? Um, and we also looked at um, embedding data in education. So it's probably not a new idea this one well we know it's not a new idea but how do we ensure that the people who are going through the school system today are going to be equipped with the uh, the coding the data analysis um, and and the IT tools 
um, to be able to use the extraordinarily large volumes of data that they're going to be um, gifted when they graduate and move into the workforce. You mentioned that the outcomes from this event were tangible. Um, so what were these tangible outcomes and how unique was this event? Um, well, in, in terms of uh, how different the event is, look, it's pretty much everyone who came uh, to the event told me that they had never been to one like it. So I suppose that, that gives you an indication of, of, um, of, it, of its point of difference. But the tangible outcomes, right, there were a couple um, one was that both of these live pieces of policy have have been influenced and the people who are leading their creation have committed to using the discussions that happened uh, at our event and the issues that were raised at our event to shape the way that they uh, they to influence the way that they shape their policy so to help them to write it to, to explore new directions and to think about new avenues to um, to pursue. So there will be a meaningful uh, outcome in that sense that it is going to actually shape issues of life policy that will be applied to um, to make decisions about the way that we uh, run our STEM sector, about the way that we look after our environment in the years to come. Um, it has a couple of other outcomes though and one is that we have uh, started to create a common language between people who work in science and technology, whether in research or applied, um, who are interested in uh, engaging with the policy-making process but hadn't previously known how to do that, they now have some tools, they now have some pathways um, and some open doors and some contacts so that they can continue to meaningfully engage. Likewise, the people there from the policy-making side who um, have perhaps only previously consulted with peak bodies and uh, interest groups now have pathways directly to individuals who are interested, uh, knowledgeable and articulate and are really importantly working um, at, at the coalface of, uh, of this sector. So we've, in, we've created some new connections that are most of the people or all of the people in the room have committed to um, pursuing. Some of them won't obviously, but a lot of them will. And finally, we asked everybody who came to the event to, at the end of the session, write themselves a postcard uh, and promise themselves on that postcard that they were going to do something as a result of the event. Now, um, as we said to them, it may have been as simple as following up with a new contact that they have made, or it might have been as life-changing as pursuing a new direction in their career. Uh, but it was up to them. We asked them to think about what they would promise themselves to do, and in a month or two, we're going to post on those postcards as a, as a bit of a reminder. And I hope that it will serve as a a little kickstart for them when they receive that postcard in the mail to, to pick it up and look at it and go, oh, that's right, I promised myself that I'd do that. And then hopefully they start to take some steps towards change. And given the fact that the scientific community and politicians or policymakers are frequently depicted as at odds with each other, did you notice any of that sort of atmosphere at the event or was it quite collegiate? Really collegiate, you know, it's, it's a really interesting um, point that you raise and we run Science Meets Parliament as well, so uh, it's, it's a very different event but I guess it's like this one in that we bring scientists, technologists together with uh, parliamentarians in federal, uh, federal MPs and senators and 
the point you raise keeps coming up, but I have to say it's not my experience. It isn't an adversarial relationship. And I, I guess I characterise it by saying that both scientists and politicians and policymakers, in fact, they do what they do because they're motivated to change the world in some way. They think that they have something positive to contribute um, to make the world a better place in, in whatever way they want to do that. Everyone's got a different idea about what a better place might be and uh, how to get there. I, I understand that. So really, the quibble's about how we get there rather than about whether we should be going there. Um, and so in that sense, there's a lot of commonality there between a scientist and a policymaker or a scientist and a politician. Um, and I suppose it's also, when you look at the events that we run, including Science Meets Policymakers, it's a self-selected group. People are coming to it because they want to learn how, how the other side operates, to learn each other's language, to make connections and to learn how to work together more effectively. So, you know, it's a pretty nice space to be playing in from my perspective because they all come willing and open and ready. Yeah, and I suppose also uh, the sort of feel-good stories aren't as sort of media um, media suitable, so they probably don't get covered as much. Yeah, that's true. And look, it's also true to say that um, science and technology degrees are not hugely represented in um, either the political or the, the policy-making leadership um, in this country, or historically they haven't been. So I can see where there might be a, an expectation that there's a lack of understanding or empathy there. But um, increasingly that's changing when it comes to the public service um, and agencies, for example, there are, um, there's, I heard just this morning actually about a, a new working group for people uh, who are interested or qualified in STEM in the Australian public service. Um, and that goes across all of the departments and agencies. Um, so there's clearly a, a growing uh, recognition that science and technology degrees have a, a part to play in the public service and I, I wholeheartedly support that obviously. Um, we have a very small number of elected representatives um, in federal parliament who have a science, technology, engineering or mathematics degree or something that's related. So, you know, we have a couple of vet scientists, a couple of medical doctors, for example, and around um, 17 people with a, a direct STEM undergraduate degree. Most of the people in Parliament House have uh, an economics degree or a law degree um, and or a, in international policy is another one that comes up um, over and over again. So there is a particular mindset in that sense that they're, they're uh, coming from a fairly uh, homogeneous uh, approach to the way that they think and the way that they understand and interpret the world. Um, but having said that, all of the people who are in Parliament House are there, as I said, not only because they think that they can you know, contribute meaningfully to making uh, change for the better in the world, but also because they're very publicly minded and, and they're very outgoing. And if you were not prepared to talk to people and listen to people, you wouldn't get elected to Parliament. So um, I, I always have to... I'm the eternal optimist. I always expect and, and believe that if you walk in with the right mindset, you can find a connection point with anyone. Okay, well, on that very positive note, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the interview.